0: Great, so the final lecture in this series from autumn 2011 is on the first part of Henry IV. So this is a play written in about 1596 to 7, and therefore, although it's obviously got uh, historical sequential links with Richard II, the previous play in the historical sequence, and with Henry IV Part Two and Henry V, which are coming after it in historical chronology, It's actually, I think, got more in common in certain ways with the comedies of that period than with the histories. So Richard II is a play, uh, as I talked about earlier in the term, all in verse, very formal verse play. Uh, uh, Henry IV, part one, has a lot of prose in it, uh, proportions quite similar to Merchant of Venice, say, uh, Merry Wives of Windsor, plays of about this same 1596-7 to period. It's not always clear, I think, that Henry IV was intended as the first part of a pair of plays. I don't think that was always clear, and I'm going to try and uh, talk a bit more about that during the lecture. It's first printed in 1598, and it's one of the most popular plays. In fact, it's the most popular Shakespeare play in print uh, in the immediate uh, 1590s into the 17th century. I think that's largely because of the dramatic attractiveness of its fat anti-hero, Falstaff. And so the question I wanted to ask about this play is, why is Falstaff fat? OK, so let's recap the plot of the play. Henry IV, who has, in the previous play, Richard II, taken the throne from Richard, his cousin, is beset from the outset of Henry IV, Part I, by conspiracy, civil war, and insubordination. And it's useful, in a way, perhaps, to think about that, taking two forms, two substantive forms in the play. So it's over, overburdened with civil war and insubordination, because it comes in two quite distinct forms. The first we might describe as political. It's a rebellion led by the charismatic and chivalric hotspur supported by his father, Northumberland, his brother-in-law, Mortimer, who has a claim to be the rightful heir to the throne, the Welshman, Glendower, and Douglas, a Scot. So this is a coalition of noblemen who don't accept Henry IV's claim to the throne. That's the political uh, threat. Perhaps more pressingly, though, we get the rebellion of Henry's son, Prince Hal. Hal ignores the court, and his royal obligations, preferring instead the company of Falstaff in the taverns of East Cheap. The play tells the story of the gradual reconciliation of father and son, culminating in the Battle of Shrewsbury where Hal kills Hotspur and protects his father from being attacked. Now, as I've already said, Henry IV was a hugely popular play uh, it's, it's hard for us to reconstruct the popularity of plays in performance... ...just because the evidence uh, is very hard to find. But we can do something about the popularity of plays in print. So uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about print play statistics. We can see that the most popular play of the Elizabethan and Jacobean period in print... ...is an anonymous play called Musidorus. Musidorus. Musidorus is a strange kind of winter's tale light... Uh, well worth looking at if you're looking at at that play Uh, for some reason this is a hugely popular uh, kind of a best-selling play it has nine editions in 25 years so nine editions for Musidorus. this is an attempt to try and place Henry IV's popularity in some kind of context the next most popular plays by reprints are Doctor Faustus and the Spanish Tragedy they have eight and seven editions respectively in 25 years so there's no Shakespeare play in the top three, uh, we might think, most, uh, most, most popular plays. Shakespeare is a much more successful writer of narrative poems in this period than he is of plays in terms of print. Okay, so the most best-selling uh, work by Shakespeare uh, entirely through his lifetime is not a play at all, but is Venus and Adonis narrative Ovidian uh, poem and most references to Shakespeare during his lifetime are uh, as a poet, the poet of Venus and Adonis, not as a playwright. So, top of the list, though, of Shakespeare's plays is Henry IV, Part 1*, with seven editions in just over 25 years. You can look up this kind of bibliographic information, so searching for the number of times a, a work is reprinted, in a searchable resource listing all the publications of this period. That's called the English Shorter Title Catalogue, the English Shorter Title Catalogue, the ESTC, which is online. Now, the extended title of the first edition from 1598 covers some of the appeal of Henry IV. This is its long title, The History of Henry IV, with the battle at Shrewsbury between the King and Lord Henry Percy, surnamed Henry Hotspur of the North, with the humorous conceits of Sir John Falstaff. So if you're interested in sort of humor plays like Johnson's Every Man In and Every Man Out of His Humour from about this same period, uh, Humorous Conceits (coughs) is obviously uh, linking the play with that that form of, uh, of comedy. So we can see from the layout of the title page that the humorous conceits of Sir John Falstaff are set aside visually, typographically, from the material, the historical material, that precedes them. Sir John Falstaff is a challenge to the historical account uh, that we get uh, higher up the title page, just as he is within the play itself. You can also see... Uh, if you look at that title page, uh, l- l- lots of interesting things about uh, Shakespeare in print at this point. No authorship uh, on the title page, for instance. Uh, we don't get that for another uh, two or three years. Um, so all the, all the plays of Shakespeare published before 1599 are effectively anonymous. And more importantly, perhaps, for what I want to argue about Henry IV, there's no mention that this is part one. Okay, this is just called The History of Henry IV. Henry IV only becomes part one when it's reprinted in the folio in 1623. And We've already talked about, in relation to Richard II, that one of the organisational innovations of the folio concerns the history plays in particular. It's put the history plays into a chronological order of historical monarch uh, and reordered their titles in order to make that progression clear. So in 1600, a play called the second part of Henry IV was printed, Henry IV, part two. But the two plays are never printed together, apart from in the folio. And even after the second part of Henry IV has been printed, there are publications of what we now know as the first part of Henry IV, but which are just called Henry IV. Does that make sense? So Henry IV never really becomes part one, uh, even though it has a part two. For audiences and readers, the point of that is it was experienced as a standalone play, and maybe Shakespeare wrote it as a standalone play. The sequel, Part Two, like The Merry Wives of Windsor, in which Falstaff also appears, might be seen more as an opportunistic afterthought cashing in on a highly successful dramatic formula. And the popularity of Henry IV. The thing that makes it become part one, that spawns Merry Wives and part two, is, I think, Falstaff. Crucial to Falstaff's characterisation is his fatness. Hal's first words to him, when we first meet both Hal and Falstaff in the play's second scene, call him fat-witted. And there is constant banter about his appetite for food and drink. Names for Falstaff reiterate his size, fat guts, horse and round man, fat rogue, a gross fat man as fat as butter. So just that word fat comes uh, a score a score or more of times in the play. How long is it ago, Jack, since thou sawest thine own knee, asks Hal, and Falstaff blames, sighs and grieves for blowing him up like a bladder. Hal advises him to, lie, to hide on the ground uh, during a trick, and Falstaff asks, Have you any levers to lift me up again? <laughs> Later, he describes himself as fat and old. In a climactic sequence in the play, in Act 2, Scene 5, where Falstaff and, and Hal act out in the tavern an interview between Hal and his father, the king, Falstaff's fatness is one of the things they discuss. Ventriloquizing his father's disapproval, Hal addresses Falstaff, who is pretending to be Hal. There is a devil haunts thee in the likeness of an old fat man. A ton of man is thy companion. And then he extemporises a, a, a very extravagant sequence of similes piled up uh, for F- Falstaff's size. Uh, an example of the rhetorical figure of copia, copiousness, which we might think Falstaff actually uh, physically represents. Falstaff sticks up for himself. If to be fat is to be hated, then Pharaoh's lean kine are to be loved, referring to the biblical symbols of famine uh, in Joseph's dream in the Old Testament. So images of bulk, particularly his size and fatness, the word fat and its cognates, uh, pepper the play. It's really impossible to get away from the fact that Falstaff is fat. So before we ask why he might be fat, let's just step back for a minute to see how very unusual this is in Shakespeare's writing. Very few characters in Shakespeare are given specific physical characteristics. We hear that Cassius in Julius Caesar has a lean and hungry look, just as the apothecary in Romeo and Juliet has been worn to the bones by misery – we know how old Juliet is, and strangely, we know, we know how old Iago is too, but for most other characters we 've got a uh, very little sense uh, of their of their age either in midsummer night 's Dream, we know that one of Helena and Hermia is fair and the other dark and one is tall and the other short but it 's intrinsic to midsummer Night 's Dream that nobody can remember which is which. <laughs> Beyond this handful of immediate examples, most of which have thematic rather than specifically personal resonances, there isn't much more in the way of physical description in Shakespeare's plays. There are a few very rare occasions where a physical description of a character is so at odds with what we think the character ought to look like, which is quite an odd idea in itself. How would we know what the character looks like except through physical descriptions? So these occasions when a physical description is so at odds with the image we have of a character that editors have tried to manipulate the reference away. Examples of that might be Gertrude's description of Hamlet in the final fencing match with Laertes as fat and scant of breath. Uh, Nobody really wants a fat Hamlet. There's been all kinds of editorial work to say how she doesn't really mean that he's fat. Uh, Or maybe the idea that Caliban's witch-like mother Sycorax has blue eyes. Uh, All kinds of work to try and show how blue eyes were a really negative thing, uh, when clearly the, 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 the burden of evidence is that blue eyes were actually quite positive, not particularly associated with witches at all. So, for the most part, though, Shakespeare does not give his characters extensive physical descriptions, and nor is their appearance of particular dramatic interest. While we know that Shakespeare writes with a definite group of actors in mind, that's to say, that's one of the most crucial differences between Shakespeare and other dramatists of this period. you remember, Shakespeare is an in-house dramatist writing for uh, a, group of, a group of actors he already knows, as opposed to the freelance work that just about everybody else does during this period. So he he does capitalise on that uh, fixed group of actors and their particular talents, but he doesn't particularly capitalise on what they look like physically. So what's the upshot of all that? Falstaff's fatness is, I think, the most thoroughgoing physical designation we ever get in Shakespeare. So that whereas, for example, it's quite possible, I think, to read Othello, I think it would be different to see Othello, but it's quite easy to read Othello and to forget that Othello is black, the references to Othello's blackness are very prominent at the beginning of the play, but they tend to fade away, uh, and there's a a last sort of uh, fusillade of of racially and and sort of chromatically inflected imagery right at the end of that play. But we could read Othello, uh, and lots of people do, I think, read Othello and forget that the uh, main character uh, is black. I think it's almost impossible to imagine reading Henry IV without remembering that Falstaff is fat. So the density of these signifiers of fatness is also significant when compared to Shakespeare's sources. Although Falstaff, as he appears in the play, seems to be an ahistorical character who is enjoyably adrift from the serious political and military business we associate with history plays, he does have a real and rather controversial historical source. The source for Falstaff is the Lollard Knight Sir John Oldcastle. Oldcastle was martyred in the early 15th century and included in John Fox's extensive prehistory of English Protestantism, the Book of Martyrs. So as you know, Fox uh, Fox is, is using history to suggest that Protestantism has sort of always existed and all the good people in the past were really Protestants. Um, uh, and the bad people were, were, were really Catholics. Uh, Oldcastle is one of the good people uh, in this story and his martyrdom is, uh, is pictured and discussed uh, by Fox uh, in that really, really important um, uh, sort of Bible of, of Protestantism, the Book of Martyrs. So he was understood by Elizabethan England to be a heroic religious man who anticipated Protestantism. He lived before Protestantism, but he anticipated it and died for his beliefs... There is pretty firm evidence that in its first incarnation, and very possibly in its first performances, Falstaff's name was Oldcastle. Hal's phrase, my old lad of the castle, doesn't make much sense if it wasn't. The epilogue to part two of Henry IV teases the audience with the sense that Falstaff both is and is not Oldcastle. I mean, it does that quite explicitly. The complete Oxford Shakespeare, the collected edition edited by Stanley Wells and Gary Taylor, reinstates the name Old Castle for Falstaff, suggesting that because this was the way the play was originally written, the job of the editor is to get back to that and so to, to delete Falstaff and to, and to put Old Castle instead. So if you're reading the play in that edition, you may so far be wondering who is this fat person uh, who doesn't appear at all in your play. Now, the historical old castle then was a devout and principled man and not a man noticeably fat. Uh, He certainly isn't very fat as he's being uh, grilled uh, in uh, one of uh, uh, Fox's images of martyrdom. It's clear that, that Oldcastle's Elizabethan successors, who were uh, powerful men at the, in the Elizabethan court and powerful in particular in relation to the theatre, it's clear that they took exception to seeing their noble ancestor pilloried by Shakespeare and forced the change of name. It's not clear that that was done in a, in a kind of formal way or in a. It, it, this is not a. I don't think this is the action of government censorship. I think this is pressure. Uh, informal pressure from uh, powerful people uh, forcing a change on the the play. The Chamberlain's men's great rivals, the Admiral's men, capitalised on this upset by producing a more acceptable version of the Old Castle story in the play Sir John Old Castle. In this companion play, Old Castle's religious opposition to the Catholic Church, represented in the play Sir John Old Castle by the villainous Bishop of Rochester, allies it with the popular anti-Catholicism of the early modern stage. Uh, it's really really worth looking at alongside Henry IV, part one, to show how, uh, just to get a clearer sense of how Shakespeare has satirised uh, this much more orthodox um, uh, presentation of the Protestant martyr. Ironically, this play, the, uh, the play of Sir John Oldcastle, is reprinted in 1619, uh, six, sorry, 1619 claiming to be by Shakespeare, And it's also one of a package of plays, apocryphal plays largely, added to the third folio of Shakespeare's work in 1663. So it's never quite fully separate from Shakespeare, I suppose that's what I'm trying to say there, uh, even though it's the kind of um, uh, propagandist flip side of what uh, Shakespeare does to Old Castle in the character of Falstaff. So Falstaff was fat then. Why? I'm not particularly interested here in obvious statements like Falstaff is fat because he is lazy or Falstaff is fat because he drinks too much. He clearly does, but that's because he's fat rather than the other way around. This is a literary, I think, not a medical question, although if you Google the question of Falstaff's fatness, there is a striking literature on the medical symptoms of Shakespeare characters. Uh, This is an essay in the medical journal, whoever knew there was such a journal, uh, it sounds like something from Have I Got News For You, called Obesity Surgery. This is about Falstaff and morbid uh, obesity, diagnoses Falstaff symptoms, but it ends quite interestingly, Uh, uses Falstaff as a sort of ideal patient for all the symptoms of morbid obesity. Physicians and surgeons must work to maintain the health of the world's Falstaffs. It's a great idea, isn't it? Physicians and surgeons must work to maintain the health of the world's Falstaffs and possibly by curing their morbid obesity allow them to be judged on their real merits and vices rather than on their bulk. Falstaff, though, would not be Falstaff, I want to argue, if he were not fat. This is not a symptom which could be taken away from him. This is him. We've discussed earlier in this lecture series the difference between readings of Shakespeare which place characters as primary, that is, they see the plays as fictions which manage to convince us that the characters predate what's happening to them in the play, and characters as secondary, produced by and for the needs of a particular and dominant plot. I think I want to suggest that we might think of Falstaff's fatness less as an individualising characteristic of his personality and more as part of a role, a structural role, Shakespeare wants this personage to to play in Henry IV. But this immediate idea that Falstaff is a role rather than a character or a function rather than a person this is not uncontroversial indeed we could say that the whole critical methodology of shakespearean character study is built on the study of falstaff so he's not just a character he is in some sense the character morris morgan's 1777 publication an essay on the dramatic character of john falstaff it's both the first full-length account of a Shakespearean character, but also the first book-length study of Shakespeare at all, the first work of literary criticism on Shakespeare in book form. Falstaff is therefore foundational to the discipline we're all involved in. Morgan attempts to defend Falstaff against charges of cowardice. Here he's engaging with moralist criticism of the 18th century, like that of Dr. Johnson, uh, which... Took a very dim view of Falstaff's uh, behaviour. Morgan's attempt, though, to defend Falstaff surely misses the point that Falstaff, Falstaff is a coward, which is the thing Morgan is trying to disprove, is actually vital to the play. But Morgan does represent the beginning of a tradition which has perhaps Harold Bloom as its most recent or prominent exemplar. In his book Shakespeare, The Invention of the Human, Bloom develops his thesis that Shakespeare has invented modern ideas of the human through his gifts of characterization, via two specific examples. The first is predictable enough, Hamlet. But the second is Falstaff. So Falstaff becomes for Bloom one pillar, one of the twin pillars that on which his whole theory that Shakespeare invents character or invents the human rests. Bloom credits his own youthful encounter with Sir Ralph Richardson performing the role of Falstaff with his own lifelong fascination with Shakespeare's characterization. So he says, uh, when when Bloom talks in interviews about his interest in Shakespeare, he talks about Falstaff as kicking it all off. So he's reprising in his own life the kind of Morgan uh, uh, beginnings of, of Shakespeare criticism. In an interview about his work with Vanity Fair, Bloom describes Falstaff as the most intelligent person in all of literature, which is a curious thing to say, really. Um, but So he says, the most intelligent person in all of lit- literature. But he also suggests that there is something about Falstaff which is less personal and more general. This is in a phrase where he uh, he says that Hamlet is a kind of harbinger of death. It's a nice idea about Hamlet. This is, he's, he isn't just talking to that skull. He somehow is the skull. He, he's the gateway to death. Uh, where And on the other hand, he says, Falstaff is life. Falstaff is the blessing. Falstaff is life. Falstaff is the blessing. That's Bloom being interviewed by Vanity Fair. Like Bloom's, many of these accounts of Falstaff tip over from the specifically personal to the more general and metaphorical, as if Falstaff's very fatness makes him exceed individual humanness and take on instead a kind of symbolic function. That Falstaff has a symbolic function in the play, represents more than a single person, is something Falstaff himself aspires to in Henry IV. In that scene, I've already mentioned, in which he and Hal rehearse the prince's interview with his disapproving father, Falstaff, as Hal, defends Falstaff against the charges, rather as Morgan and numerous later critics go on to do. This is his, uh, his defence. Sweet Jack Falstaff, kind Jack Falstaff, true Jack Falstaff, valiant Jack Falstaff. Banish not him thy Harry's company. Banish not him thy Harry's company. Banish plump Jack and banish all the world. Banish plump Jack and banish all the world. It's probably something quite interesting to do semantically in the difference between fat and plump there, uh, I think. I've only really just noticed that. Falstaff's claim to Hal's affections here is the claim that he represents more than himself. He is, in some sense, all the world. No wonder, then, he's fat. The suggestion here is that Falstaff represents a vision of life, a physical, self-centred enjoyment of existence. And we can see this quite easily identifying him with popular cultural archetypes, such as the lord of misrule, the person who presides over merriment and festivity, for example, Uh, the the kind of ideas which are um, developed and codified in Bakhtin's famous theory of carnival. In his highly influential book, Rabelais and his World, Mikhail Bakhtin argues for a socially subversive carnivalesque culture of festivals and holidays in pre-modern culture and these are the times in the year these are the sort of festive uh, moments where a carnivalesque energy a suppressed energy which is physically located uh, somehow uh, lets rip so the carnival gives uh, expression to um, the the kind of physical energies uh, of the body the things that are suppressed all the rest of the year for Bakhtin, the carnivalist finds its visual expression in a trope he called the grotesque body. The grotesque body. A leaky, porous physicality preoccupied with scatological and sexual fulfillment. A body which challenges notions of decorum and preeminently, the notion that the mind controls the body or that the mind is a higher uh, uh, order than the body. It's quite easy, I think, to see how Falstaff's bulky, sweaty snoring, farting presence could be related to this Bactinian idea of the grotesque body and perhaps by extension to the challenging carnivalesque underworld which threatens to undermine official authority that's what Bactin says uh, is, is, is life-affirming and, and uh, energetic about carnival it's a challenge to official orthodoxy Fatness then here becomes joyful, exuberant provocative, anti-establishment the epitome of carnival. Perhaps, as Bardolph puts it, "You are so fat, Sir John, that you must needs be out of all compass." Uh, a sense that Falstaff cannot be confined, and his fatness is one uh, evident symbol of that. So we can see, perhaps, that Falstaff has moved in this argument from being Shakespeare's invention of the human to being Shakespeare's symbolic understanding of a carnivalesque social world. Let's try and see if we can move on with an analogy. The nearest analogy in contemporary culture that I can imagine for Falstaff is the cartoon father Homer Simpson. We all know that Homer Simpson is a loser, wastrel, inadequate father, positively dangerous worker at the Springfield nuclear power plant. Here are a few choice Homerisms. Lisa, if you don't like your job... I'm sorry, I wish I could do the accent, but I can't. Lisa, if you don't like your job, you don't strike. You just go in every day and do it really half-assed. That's the American way. Son, when you participate in sporting events, it's not whether you win or lose, it's how drunk you get. <laughs> if something's hard to do, then it's not worth doing. Now, these are funny because they're countercultural. They set up, they, they, they're rhetorically set up to establish a statement which seems to demand a pious answer. If something's hard to do, try harder. It's not whether you win or lose, it's the taking part. We all know how the sentences are supposed to to finish. But Homer's rhetoric is funny because it is anticlimactic. He mimics a kind of bumper sticker or hallmark card cliche morality, but completes it with his own realist or pathetic conclusion. And that makes Homer attractive precisely because he is not up to the ideals that our culture bombards us with, and maybe therefore he allows us, similarly, to fail to reach those ideals. Now let's listen to one of Falstaff's musings at the end of Act 5, Scene 1. Amid the chaos of the battle of Shrewsbury, the battle between the forces of the king and the rebellion of Hotspur and his associates, Falstaff is suddenly alone on stage for a brief soliloquy. I think it's his first and only soliloquy in the play. I think we're prepared, prepared and we think we know what's going to happen here. This is a point heavily cued by the structure of repentance, which uh, in some way governs the whole play. I'm going to come back to that idea of repentance in a minute. But I think it's a point where we expect that the no-mark, selfish, drunk is going to come good. It's a cliche we're all uh, familiar with. I'm afraid the only example I could think of is that drunk ex-pilot who bams into Independence Day and blows up the spaceship thing. Do you remember? Anyway, that's, a, that's actually a really, really good example of that, but I can see it's not, uh, it, it's not quite done it. But you know, you, you know the trope I'm talking about. Uh, someone who is a loser all the way through and is going to do something heroic and self-sacrificial probably at the end, which is going to make everything Okay. I think that's what we're being cued to think Falstaff is going to do. So, what does Falstaff say when he's on stage alone? What is honour? But then he goes on. What is honour? A word. What is that honour? Air. Can honour set to a leg? No. Or an arm? No. Or take away the grief of a wound? No. Honour hath no skill in surgery then? No. Falstaff ends by describing this as his catechism, a nicely ironic and subversive use of a statement of belief, the catechism is the questions and answers uh, by which somebody affirms their faith, to puncture pious and cliched definitions of honour and to replace them instead with the pragmatic and selfish concerns of the vulnerable body, which will not be protected from injury by these lofty ideals. Like Homer, that's to say, Falstaff sets up a rhetoric of piety, draws on our familiarity with the way we know we ought to behave, and, like Homer, deflates that expectation, telling the self-interested or taboo truth. It's easy, isn't it, to see how the Oldcastle family took exception to this, since the doctrine of pragmatism is so entirely opposite to Sir John Oldcastle's fate for unflinching adherence to his own deeply held beliefs. Falstaff's popularity, then, I think, must be related to the fact that he is unapologetic and unrepentant, And I think this does tell us something important about the anti-moralistic energies of the stage in this period. The stage is not moral in this period. I don't think plays are moral. uh, And I don't think that's what people want to go and see. The popularity of Falstaff might give us a way into thinking about that. Of course, the fact that Falstaff neither apologizes nor repents allows, uh, perhaps makes inevitable, the possibility of a sequel. But let's look a bit at how repentance and apology do work. In Henry IV. So Henry IV is structured like a number of dramatic uh, and particularly a number of prose texts from the 1590s around the theme of the prodigal son. As Richard Helgerson pointed out more than 30 years ago in a book called Elizabethan Prodigals, writing by uh, figures like Gascoigne, George Gascoigne, Robert Green, Thomas Lodge, and Philip Sidney, among others use the theme of the prodigal to characterise the narrative voice. Writers think of themselves as prodigals whose creative freedom requires them to rebel against paternal or paternalistic authority. The theme of the prodigal comes, of course, from Luke's Gospel. You'll remember the parable. It tells how the younger son of a rich man decides to claim his share of inheritance before his father's death and then goes on to spend it in a profligate way in the city, Brought to absolute penury by his reckless spending and working as a swineherd, the son realises that his father's servants have a better time than he and vows to return to throw himself on his father's mercy, not as his son, but as his servant. But on his arrival home, the father is so overjoyed to see him that he orders a great feast, the killing of the fatted calf. Much to the chagrin of the older brother, who has had no such reward, for living loyally and consistently all the time in his father's house. The theme is a prominent one in Henry IV. The prince's dedication to excess and riot rather than obedience to his father makes the paradigm clear. Implicit in the theme of the prodigal son is the expectation of reformation. And in Henry IV, the play makes it quite clear that Hal has this teleology firmly in mind. At the end of Act 1, Scene 2, Hal delivers an unexpected soliloquy. He's been on stage uh, in a kind of prose, back and forth, particularly with Falstaff, but with the other uh, tavern companions uh, laughing and joking, uh, setting up a trick where they're going to um, uh, rob some um, uh, travellers. That's been going on for quite some time, and it's a a scene which is really uh, effectively contrasted with a very... um, sort of gloomy, serious, uh, controlled uh, environment of the court, which we get in Act 1, Scene 1. So Act 1, Scene 2 seems to work to to contrast with that in every way, the the subject matter, the tone, um, uh, prose versus uh, verse and so on. But at the end of the scene, all the tavern companions leave the stage and Hal stays behind to deliver a long speech about his intentions. So I'm going to, this is an important speech I'm going to read the whole thing I know you all and will a while uphold the unyoked humour of your idleness yet herein will I imitate the sun who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world that when he please again to be himself being wanted he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugly mists of vapours that did seem to strangle him If all the year were playing holidays, to sport would be as tedious as to work. But when they seldom come, they wished for come, and nothing pleaseth but rare accidents. So when this loose behaviour I throw off and pay the debt I never promised by how much better than my word I am, by so much shall I falsify men's hopes. And like bright metal on a sullen ground, my reformation, glittering o'er my fault, shall show more goodly and attract more eyes than that which hath no foil to set it off. I'll so offend to make offence a skill, redeeming time when men think least I will. Now, the language of reform is interesting here, but so too is the language of manipulation. Hal is stage managing his reformation for maximum effect. He's a self-conscious prodigal who knows that the worse his behaviour, the greater the sense of welcome relief at his reformation. And the language of this revelation at the end of Act 1, Scene 2, is distinctive. Set aside from the short, informal prose of the foregoing scene, Hal's speech immediately echoes the blank verse world of the court. That's that's been in Act 1, Scene 1, and it's going to be in the scene immediately following Act 1, Scene 3. There's a kind of chilling reassurance in the ease with which Hal slips into the blank verse of political uh, control and expediency. I'm only slumming it in the tavern. I know my place. In time, I will emerge to claim it. In part, of course, this is the expected teleology of the prodigal son narrative, that the prodigal son goes home uh, and repents. And in moral and structural terms, the play (coughs) needs to end The play needs to end with Hal's repentance and his reconciliation with his father. To some extent, the play does end in that way. Hal assumes the proper role of the Prince of Wales, fighting alongside his father and protecting him from attack by the Scot Douglas. His father's gratitude at being saved from Douglas, thou hast redeemed thy lost opinion, thou hast redeemed thy lost opinion, directly links to the language of Hal's speech, for acts previously. But what also happens in this scene is that the play brings its two father figures uh, into uh, a kind of juxtaposition, and that's where Falstaff comes back into our story. I've already suggested that Falstaff's own repentance is cued by the play's thematic and generic structure, but that this expectation is decisively subverted by Falstaff's confident selfishness. Unlike Hal, that's to say, Falstaff does not bend himself to normative political, ethical, or familial values. Related to this, I think, is his role as an alternative father to Hal. In the play's opening scene, the king wishes that the brave Hotspur, also called Harry, were revealed to be his own lost son, changed uh, with the wastrel Prince Hal by fairies in the cradle. So if King Henry wishes for an alternative son, so, Hal himself wishes for an alternative father. In absenting himself from court, he establishes himself in the alternative locus of Eastcheap, a disreputable location associated largely with prostitution in the Elizabethan period, hence the irony of Middleton's title, A Chaste Maid in Cheapside. Uh, and Hal establishes himself in that alternative locus with an alternative monarch, Falstaff. Howell's choice as a prodigal, then, is in fact a choice between father figures, which father does he return to at the end? Douglas the Scot fights both Henry IV and Falstaff in Act Five, Scene Four, bringing them together in a way which is perhaps inevitable for the moral and ethical choices of the plot's final resolution. Two adjacent stage directions can give us a sense of the difference between these uh, adjacent encounters, So the first is Douglas and uh, Henry IV fighting. They fight, the king being in danger, enter the Prince of Wales. Uh, And then the other one, uh, enter Douglas, he fighteth with Falstaff, he falls down as if he were dead, he Falstaff, the prince killeth Percy. Both Douglas's triumphs are taken from him, that's to say. In the first, Hal comes in to save his father, and in the second, Falstaff drops down, pretending to be dead. Fathers multiplying this sequence, just as Henry IV's battle strategy involves sending numerous doppelgangers out into the field. Douglas has already lost uh, another time by killing a fake king, Sir Walter Blunt, dressed uh, in the king's uh, armour. So fathers and father figures are echoed in this scene, and none of them can quite uh, be killed. What's striking is that Hal aligns himself with his royal father, but he does not quite take the, uh, the, the corollary, the step of distancing himself entirely from Falstaff. At the end of the play, he has the opportunity to reveal Falstaff as a shameless and dishonourable coward. Falstaff is claiming Hotspur as his own victim, stabbing his, corp- his corpse callously and dragging it off to claim reward. Hal knows that he himself killed Falstaff and that this is untrue but he does not take the opportunity uh, to reveal uh, Falstaff, nor to punish him. At the end of the play then, he is still caught between the two alternative fathers. That Hal's own reformation is compromised by this ambivalence, I think is made clear by the existence of the sequel. In part two, Hal reunites with Falstaff and his behavior continues to disappoint his royal father. So he he falls back from uh, the decision he seems to have made at the end of this play. Perhaps Falstaff's physical size and the difficulty of denying him come together here. Falstaff is fat, and that makes it more difficult for Hal to turn away from him. Uh, As he he says himself, he's a kind of vice figure. He represents the appeal and the allure uh, of the way Falstaff should not behave. And the bigger he is, the more compelling and convincing uh, that representation is. But the moral thrust of Henry IV and its dramatic energies are in a conflict, and it's similar to the conflict we saw uh, in the lecture about Antony and Cleopatra. Um, you remember in that play, uh, the sort of historical logic, in some ways the rational logic, is that Caesar has got to win at the end. Uh, but the dramatic logic is that we don't, we're not interested in Rome, uh, we're interested in Egypt. Something, so there's something similar here. A morally conclusive ending requires the rejection or defeat of Falstaff but a dramatically satisfying one does not want to let him go. It may be that Shakespeare has actually been too successful in this play. He's allowed the play's antagonist, Falstaff, to take over. And take over, Falstaff certainly did. A collection called the Shakespeare Allusion Book, made in the 1930s, which is a collection of allusions to Shakespeare and to Shakespeare's works during his lifetime and in <coughs> the immediate aftermath, is completely dominated by references to Falstaff. Indeed, at the top of the index to the book, this book of allusions to Shakespeare, it says, for the purposes of this index, Falstaff is treated as a work. So for the purposes of this index, Falstaff is treated as a work. There are more direct references to Falstaff than to all the other plays put together. Among the entries are comments in plays by Massinger, Middleton and Suckling, uh, but there's also uh, more kind of um, private uh, correspondence Uh, and references, including the Countess of Southampton's gossipy postscript in a letter to her husband. This is what she says. All all the news I can send you that I think (coughs) will make you merry is that Sir John Falstaff is by his Mrs. Dame Pintpot made father of a goodly miller's thumb. So she's using John Falstaff presumably to talk about a fat person they know who has become, who who, who has had a a, a child or made someone pregnant. Uh, They may be be talking about... um, uh, the, the figure who uh, of the family, the Oldcastle family but they may just be talking about a, a sort of fat person for whom Sir John Falstaff has become uh, a kind of nickname. So Falstaff's self-interest then and his unorthodox pragmatism made him an unlikely but an undeniable Elizabethan hero. And that may suggest that those versions of these plays, uh, Henry IV, Part One and Two, uh, sometimes with bits of Merry Wives of Windsor, that put him at the centre uh, are echoing the Elizabethan uh, reception of these plays. Okay, so, so when critics like um, Kernan call uh, the, Henry, the, Henry, the plays from Henry IV to Henry V the Henryad on the model of the Aeneid, uh, they're suggesting that Henry is at the centre of them. But perhaps we need something which is more like a kind of Falstaffiad, uh, rather like Wells' uh, Chimes at Midnight, a great sort of um, lyrical, tragicomic film by Orson Welles, um, combining Henry IV, part one and two, but with Hal as a very marginal, uh, boyish, uh, puppyish, kind of foolish figure, and Falstaff as the uh, the central uh, figure, the centre of our of our attention, played, of course, by Wells himself. Putting Falstaff at the heart of the play substitutes Shakespeare's conflicted moral telos of the prodigal with the critical reception of the play that wants more Falstaff. Part of the problem for part two of Henry IV, aside from the intrinsic formal problem of being a sequel that we're familiar with from Hollywood, is that it has to reconcile the prodigal son narrative... Hal has to separate himself from Falstaff, with the ongoing popularity of Falstaff himself. Okay, So Hal has to separate himself from a figure that everybody loves. That's the, that, that's the kind of conundrum of part two. The end of Henry IV, part one, is no ending at all. Hal and his father have been reconciled, and contrary to the rumours that he wanted to kill his father and take away the throne, he has saved his father from death on the battlefield at Shrewsbury. But just as this battle is not the whole war, And just as the last lines of the play see the king reorganizing his forces to continue the fight against the rebels, so too Falstaff is an unresolved and perhaps an unresolvable figure. In the encounter with Douglas we heard about before, Falstaff falls down as if he were dead. And he lies on the stage among the battle casualties for some moments while Hal delivers his eulogy on the dead hotspur, And then on Falstaff himself, there's a last nod by Hal to Falstaff's size. Could not all this flesh keep in a little life? Hal leaves the stage, believing his old acquaintance to be dead, at which the stage direction reads, Falstaff riseth up. The word riseth is just somehow much more than gets up or stands up. Uh, there is some sort of resurrective energy, some vitality in the idea of rising up. Falstaff seems to be unkillable, unlike the other figures in the play, who who lie down. And, I mean, they're all lying down, aren't they? Pretending to be dead, but Falstaff knows he's pretending. Uh, Hotspur. Uh, uh, we we know Hotspur's pretending but we have to pretend we don't think he is pretending we have to pretend we think he's really dead Um, but Falstaff becomes in a way as Bloom might say the spirit of life itself itself from among the dead of the battle Falstaff resists the historical process that would kill him too It kind of makes sense of of Hal's opening remarks to Falstaff. Falstaff asks him what time it is. Hal says, why on earth do you need to know what time it is since you never do anything? There is an idea that Falstaff is a kind of figure outside time or anti-time. Time Uh, time is 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 the axis, the field in which history happens, and Falstaff is immune to that. He's not part of that world. So Falstaff is not really a historical figure, and that may be accidental, that may be because Old Castle had to be changed into Falstaff, but the result of that is to to have the most vital figure in the play, a a figure who is not part of or constrained by history. It's almost as if he operates in a different world from the other characters. W.H. Auden argued that Falstaff could not fully inhabit the world of chronicle histories. His values, his language, and perhaps we might think, above all, his fatness, are all in excess... Of historical process. As David Castan puts it, Falstaff is never merely the servant of the historical plot. He is never merely the servant of the historical plot. And in that I think he's a really interesting uh, figure of a group of characters I've become more conscious of writing these lectures, uh, characters who won't play the part that's been set for them or who resist uh, the tyranny or the control of the play's sort of playwright uh, or, or directorial figures. We talked about those in relation to The Tempest last week. Um, uh, uh, Bertram, who, who has a kind of romantic plot written for him by the king in, in All's Well That Ends Well, but doesn't want to do it. Um, uh, Barnardine, perhaps in Measure for Measure, someone who is supposed to be killed in order to enable the plot to keep going and just says, no, I won't, I'm not going to do it. So characters who, uh, Falstaff then becomes a character who resists the plot in which he finds himself. So Falstaff's fatness is then a challenge to historical pragmatism, to the leanness of cause and effect, a kind of anti-historical excess, just as he, as a character, impedes the patterns of succession that structure historical progress. So Falstaff's fatness, I think, is at the centre of a nexus of quite paradoxical associations. They make him at once more individualistic and more communal, more literally more of a person and less symbolically of one. His size registers something of his resistance to confinement, moral, ethical, historical, generic, hence perhaps his reappearance in a comedy, Merry Wives of Windsor. So I've tried in this lecture, as in previous ones, to show how an apparently reductive question might take us into issues about the play's structure its sources and its analogues, and then briefly, its reimagining on film. Next term, I'm going to lecture on comedy of errors, Richard III, All's Well That Ends Well, King John, King Lear, and Pericles. And I hope maybe I'll see some of you then. Thank you.